So as I said earlier, this, this time of year is a special time of year in this culture. I think in many cultures as we honor the changing of the seasons, the changing of the light, um, this whole cycle that begins with uh, the f- bounty of fall and in this country Thanksgiving, uh, the holiday season as we call it, this intensity of, of time going from Thanksgiving through in the Christian tradition, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, all the different ways this period is uh, celebrated. Um, but really at the center of it is this changing of the light of the solstice and the, the ending of the old year and the beginning of a new year. So it seemed natural to talk about that on this 29th of December. And many cultures honor this period because it is so pivotal, the, the changing of the light, the darkness that comes with the onset of winter and then the solstice and the changing, the growing of the light um, and the holiday season, all of the emotions and qualities of mind and heart that are cultivated at this time, many, many positive ones and of course some that are quite challenging in this period. And you have to remember uh, also, it's, I don't know if you'd say a, a relative thing, but I'm from Australia. When we celebrate Christmas, it's the middle of summer and we have salad and uh, ice cream, you know, for Christmas dinner because it's usually 90 or 100 degrees. So even the concept of, you know, Christmas being this time of year is a somewhat relative one. Um, But countries all over the world have celebrations at this time of year, whether they're New Year's Eve or even non-Christian countries celebrate Christmas. If you've ever been in Asia at Christmas time, every hotel, every store will have a big uh, Christmas display. I think people just love the feelings that are associated with Christmas of friendship and family and gift giving and generosity, the, the lights and the color. They sometimes don't get quite the whole uh, concept right, though. They certainly... That you know, Jesus and the birth of D- Jesus, I think that's not much on their agenda. But my husband was in, I think it was Bangkok for Christmas one year, and he saw a display that had Santa and the seven dwarves. So it was, you know, kind of enthusiastic evocation of Christmas, but not, not quite the exact uh, thing. But, but there's something joyous about this time. Um, uh, and the mixed mixed emotions, it's what's called a liminal time, this time of transition, this time of change from from the fall to the winter, from the light to the dark, and then the growing light again. I actually, this solstice I read somewhere was that it's, you know, the solstice is the darkest night of the year, the longest night of the year. And this past one I read on the internet, must be true, right? The darkest one for 500 years. I don't know how they measure that. I guess they can. I take it's true. It was on the internet. But just that sense of, you know, that, that, that shift that happens in the earth and its rotation, etc. And now already we're moving into the light. Even though it doesn't feel like it, it's well dark, you know, by 5.30 or 6. That transition has happened. But those times of change in those transition times, as in so many things, they're the most, um, have the most potential, but also often the most vulnerable, the times of the most challenge. And, and they go together, the, the challenge and the opportunity. 
And as I said, this, uh, you know, the fact that it's January 29th or it's New Year's Eve on the 31st on Wednesday and then a new year, the f 2015, hard to keep track, on Thursday, that's just a concept. You know that, right? In, in Buddhist countries, it's the year 2555. And uh, the Buddhist New Year is actually usually celebrated in May. It's considered to be the, the time of the Buddha's actually birth, enlightenment, and death. He was very uh, orderly. They all happened on the same full moon in May. Um, again, just history. But uh, And in uh, Tibet, they celebrate New Year in February. So again, we've got to be aware that all these things that seem so big and, and momentous, they're just concepts. But... They're helpful concepts because they mark something um, that's very important for us individually and as a culture, as a community. And of course, um, you know, in, in many cultures, especially traditional cultures, this was a time of going inward. Uh, as, the, as the darkness grew and it was cold outside, people would gather around fires and tell stories and make things. It would be a time of really cultivating a sense of connection. In our culture, of course, we have uh, the internet, video games, and shopping. There are ways of marking the season. But hopefully for people like us that choose to come here, it, it, that, that reflection, that honest and, and, and kind of poignant reflection is part of this process for us. <laughs> And so traditionally, people look back over 2014 in this case, and do you get tired of the best of and the worst of lists? It's like, how do the journalists fill the column pages of, you know, who made the news in 2014, what was good, what was bad, always trying to make these lists out of it. But it, it is pointing to something of this, as I said, this reflection that's actually an important thing to do, to take stock to um, have this contemplation, this uh, evaluation, not in a judging way, but in a sense of the impact that it's had this year, this past year, on us individually and as a culture and in the whole world. And as is often the case, a mixed, a mixed bag, a year of a lot of hope and joy and good things happening and a huge amount of despair and suffering, of cruelty, and injustice, and senseless killings, and the anger that's been evoked, the understandable anger evoked because of that, of natural disasters, of wars, and un unimaginable, especially for us um, living such relatively blessed lives, unimaginable suffering in many parts of the world. And so it can be easy to get... Be despairing about the state of the world and, and the tendency, the direction it seems to be going. But I, I think it's helpful, as Martin Luther King Jr. did, to take the long view. He said something like, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And all the ways that that is being tr seen to be true in the, in the um, validation of rights of all kinds of human beings, whatever their sexual orientation and the profound changes that be made in this culture and, and many other countries in the world as far as that's concerned. This general tendency, even though there are so often setbacks and heartbreaks, my, my 
belief, my hope, my faith is in this tendency towards the enlightening, the lighting up of culture and the world. Because there are so many uh, places of hope and light. One of the stories I read just recently is that many women, especially women of color, are leading the movement, the protest movements in Ferguson and in other places, you know, the Black Lives Matter, and really looking to create um, substantial change, not just, you know, have a protest and then it's forgotten or Band-Aids or lip service to what needs to happen, but these powerful women stepping up and, and leading these movements, and that's so inspiring. And then we've all read stories of generosity and kindness and courage, the people that are out on the front lines uh, working with Ebola and the the victims of Ebola, enormous sacrifice and bravery, all of the acts of of generosity, of of feeding the hungry and and clothing those that are um, in the cold. And so both are true. And in this time, it's really important that we don't just focus on one, not a Pollyanna-ish view of, of the world, but certainly not one that only looks at what the problems are, that, this, that both are really true. And so we reflect and we, we, we hold, we weigh these things and let them, we let ourselves feel the impact. And we also, in the looking forward, start to... Think of what are our priorities and intentions as we come to a new year. Again, a, traditionally a time of fresh starts, of, of a redirection, of coming up with new ways to motivate ourselves, to enlarge our capacity, to be present in life, to grow and give uh, in all the ways we can in our lives. And so New Year's resolutions is a big part of that. And just to acknowledge how that can be a time of vulnerability. If we want to make change, it means letting go of what's familiar, of what's safe, of what's grown out of habit into conditioning and character. And to shift that is scary. I remember being on retreat uh, a while ago here at Spirit Rock and walking through the woods back here and being quite mindful and happening to glance on the underside of a, a bough of a tree in the woods, a cicada going through the process of releasing itself from its old shell. And I'd never actually seen one in that transition point. And what it had done, it had clasped onto the underside of the bough and then somehow, I guess, its uh, stomach, its, its abdomen area was where it started to split open and it had thrust itself backwards. So its back feet were still hanging, the old shell, the back feet. And they could see the husk, but this bright new green bean <coughs> was coming out. But to do that, it had to kind of rear backwards and open this whole vulnerable, uh, very... Um, tender place of its its abdomen, its innermost being, to be able to grow. And it was so bright green, yet so tender, and it was really so evocative of that movement to let go of the old, to really make shift and change that's lasting. We have to go through this liminal time, this vulnerability, where we're not quite sure of what we should be doing, what the direction is. We don't know 
what the next step is or where we'll land. You know, the old habits tend to make these well-worn paths and, and they're safe. We like them. Even if they don't work so well for us anymore, even if they're no longer serving us, just because of the comfort factor, we go in those same directions again and again. And so this willingness to open up um, and be a little vulnerable and to ask for support from our friends and family. One of the most powerful ways of um, supporting our new intentions is actually to share them with others. When we just hold them as something internal, it's so easy to get lost in our habit patterns and the things that feel safe. We just revert back to that old way of being. I could see it in myself. I've actually just moved house. I, I live in Woodacre. I've lived in my old house for 23 years in Woodacre. And we moved five minutes away. So we still live in Woodacre, but everything still had to get packed up and moved to a new house, so all of that disruption. And I think three or four times I've turned to go to my old house. You know, you're just driving home and thinking of everything that needs to be done, and the car has made the turn, and, oh, I don't live here anymore. Turn around and go back. It's sort of funny. Um, but just the disruption of the habit patterns of where you put something so it's next to something else, and now they're in different rooms, and the, the kind of disconcerting uh, quality that comes when you're not quite sure where everything is. And so we like the comfort of habit. We establish habits because it's easy for us. It allows the nervous system to quieten down. But they get solidified. So this willingness to step into the unknown, to actually make change, is what uh, um, is, makes new growth possible. These, these, the possibility of waking up of whatever that looks like for you is only going to happen if we are able to let go of some of these old patterns and begin to create new patterns that actually do serve us, that are more in alignment with our truest intentions and deepest wishes for ourselves. But the traditional way of making resolutions, you know, it's, it's like, you know, the, make a resolution and stick to it. And, you know, how many of us, I know I'm always could lose 10 pounds, you know, I want to go on a diet. And so like having this intention, this resolution, and I always imagine the thinner me in the future. I don't ever think that much about the hungry me or the grumpy me. And it's always the me of tomorrow that's dieting, not the me of today. And I give this future me all of this power of an intention that I don't ha seem to have today to do whatever it is, but some future me, and I get to that point and I'm still this me that doesn't want to go on a diet or whatever it is that, you know, you have your intention. So it's often not that helpful to create these kind of intentions out of a force of will. I, I, I haven't seen, they certainly haven't worked for me that well. I, I'd really rather talk about new directions or orientations, shifting the compass rather than saying I will or I won't. It's like, what direction do I want to go in? What, what actually will serve my deepest heart wish and intention? And then look for what supports that in our life. So what needs to be cultivated, whether it's activities or states of mind and heart practices, whether it's situations, things like coming 
to meditation centers and actually getting support from other people from hearing teachings. We need to think of what will help us align with these values so that they get supported rather than thinking we can do it through sheer force of will. In practice, this is called aditana or determination. Um, It's one of the paramis, this list of the ten qualities that are perfected as we develop in our uh, spiritual practice. And when we create uh, aditanas, you could uh, translate it as determination or resolutions or steadfastness. I love the phrase that we're encouraged to use, and that's may I. May I open and grow in compassion. May my heart be filled with loving kindness. You might recognize this phrasing as part of the metta practice. The phrases of metta or loving kindness practice are aditanas. Uh, They're determinations, but they're not I should or I must or I'm bad if I don't, but they're phrased with a may I. May my heart be filled with kindness. May I be happy. May you be happy. May you be free of judgment and self-blame. I love this phrasing because it opens to the possibility that this change will happen, but it doesn't uh, beat us up if it doesn't. It, It acknowledges that we're human and that these are practices that we necessarily necessarily will sometimes fail at. We won't get it right. So we practice. Practice implies imperfection. And so to hold these shifts um, more as reorientations, as uh, aditanas, as resolutions that are phrased as a training rather than a should. And so we don't set ourselves up for failure. So an aspiration or a change in relationship. And then looking to see what supports that intention. And so we create the ground for success rather than beating ourselves up because perhaps we fail in when we set some really clear and rigid uh, guideline or boundary. So it's a, it's a bigger picture than, you know, I'm going to go to the gym five times a week or I'm going to lose 10 pounds or I'm going to be kind to my mother-in-law or whatever it is. We, 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 we take a bigger picture of these things and look at the attitudes we have, the intentions that we have. Intention is so important. And intention, like motivation or aspiration, isn't something that's out there in the future. You know, I intend to be X, Y, and Z at some future date. We're creating and acting out of intentions all of the time. In Buddhist psychology, it's said that every moment we're creating intentions. Every movement of body and mind has intention behind it. And so clarifying these intentions on this moment-to-moment level, recommitting out of a heart space, not a mental, you know, beating up space of I should be different, I should be better, I shouldn't be like this, I should be like that. But really this connection that happens in many ways, but certainly through meditation, of what's my heart wish here? What truly will serve me 
as I move into 2015, what needs to be let go of, and what needs to be cultivated or grown. So it's a much broader picture than uh, just making a resolution and thinking willpower alone will do it. Maybe it does for you. It hasn't done it for me and for many of the people that I speak to. So this big picture of redirectional reorientation rather than resolution and framing it in a way that makes it a practice for us rather than uh, a thing that we must do. When I was asked to speak uh, tonight in the roster of teachers that are coming over these weeks, we were, um, so it was suggested that we speak on what are called the Brahma Viharas. So there was a theme over these weeks. The Brahma Viharas are this beautiful list of qualities that we develop of mind and heart. Brahma Vihara means uh, abo- divine abidings or um, beautiful qualities of heart and mind. And they're metta or loving kindness, compassion, uh, Karuna or compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, unupeka or equanimity. And I uh, thought I would speak mainly on equanimity, though, you know, as I've been doing, touching on intention and, and uh, clarification of our, our practice. But equanimity seemed such a helpful value, such a helpful practice to do at this time of year. As I said, in this time of transition, this time sometimes of challenge um, that we can have over the holiday season. And I titled the talk, An Open Heart and a Clear Mind. And I I love this uh, combination because it really represents the, the, the heart of the Buddha's practice, that our hearts are open and connected and loving and kind, yet there's a clarity there's an equanimity or a wisdom that's supporting that openness. So it's not deluded. We call it uh, false compassion or deluded compassion. And Sylvia Borstein, who I mentioned earlier, she often talks about these, this combination and said that's what all her practice is about, what helps her keep her heart open and her mind clear. And she looks to develop in herself the qualities and the experiences and the intentions that enable her to do that. And so equanimity is woven into that because as we're more present and steady, it enables us to have an open heart and a sense of compassion and joy. With equanimity, the mind is steady and so can stay clear and and curious and and open. Um, And so all of these qualities go together Another way of talking about an open heart and a clear mind is wisdom and compassion. And many of you may have heard these are, kind of, we call them the wings of our practice, wisdom and compassion. And they need each other. The bird can't fly with, with just one or the other. Both are needed. The wisdom, the, the clear mind, the compassion, the open heart, whether expressing it itself as compassion or love or joy, gratitude. They're so central. The, the great meditation teacher Thich Nhat Hanh talks about these two, wing, uh, wisdom and compassion, the wings of the bird, and he says the body of the bird is mindfulness, that you cannot develop wisdom and compassion unless this quality, this fundamental quality of mindfulness is also developed. 
And so I want to also touch on this key component of our meditation practice, because it's necessary for all of these. It's necessary for intention, the deepening of in, and clarification of intention. It's necessary for equanimity, for wisdom and compassion. It's central to our practice. The other day, uh, we had a Christmas gathering at a friend's. We do it every year, and 15 or 20 of us get together as many people do. We, we call us the orphans. My family's in Australia, and my husband's family is uh, far-flung and, and not around too much, so we gather with these friends. Most of them are Dharma practitioners of one, way, one kind or another, so Spirit, the woman that always hosts these gatherings, always has us do a circle, and this time she suggested this theme of what's inspiring you in your practice, what's, what's motivating you and keeping the juice in your practice. And, uh, you know, as, as people were going around and I was thinking about what I might say, I thought of teachers who inspire me and teachings and the possibility of awakening, all those kind of things. But when it came my turn, I was actually surprised to hear myself say that what's inspiring me at the moment is mindfulness. Because it's such, in some ways, a simple thing. It's kind of the beginning of practice, in a way, of this kind of meditation. It's so fundamental. And yet, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh calls it the miracle of mindfulness. It's such a powerful tool. And I just spoke about my appreciation for this simple yet powerful tool of paying attention and how profound that actually is. And the brilliance of the Buddha in um, opening to this practice, very different from the practices that were taught in his time that were mainly concentration practices or devotion practices, purification practices. As far as I know, in my understanding, the Buddha came up with this turning of the attention inward in this systematic way to truly understand this mind-body experience in an intimate and profound way that when followed through with depth and, and continuity can lead to profound and complete awakening. And so mindfulness is the beginning and the end of the path. It's just truly amazing. And it's so simple. It just means paying attention. Yet, as I'm sure all of you know, it's not easy to do. And I also spoke about being inspired by the way mindfulness is entering this society. And even five years ago, if you told me about what would be happening today at the end of 2014 as far as mindfulness is concerned, and that sort of secular mindfulness, as we call it here at Spirit Rock, is permeating almost every sector of society. Uh, you know, I, I say it's becoming mainstream, and my friends who are more out there in the... I'm in the kind of Dharma world. Those are, they, it's not mainstream yet. It's, you know, getting in some places, but it's, it's not there yet. But it's getting damn close. It was on 60 Minutes the other day. That's pretty mainstream as far as I'm concerned. I don't know if you saw it. How many people saw Anderson Cooper, um, who's this you know, very nice-looking, very well-known um, 
journalist now in 60 Minutes, and he did a whole section on mindfulness where he sat a retreat with John Kabat-Zinn, who's uh, someone who teaches here and at our sister center IMS. I, I've, been a, I've been his teacher. I was on a retreat where he was a student. A uh, wonderful man, the, the, the originator of the mindfulness-based stress reduction uh, system of practice that's, that started, uh, I don't know when, back in the 80s, and uh, originally for people with um, chronic pain, so it started in the University of Massachusetts. Now, of course, really a broad reach, and thousands and thousands of people have benefited from his system of training. So he's quite well known. He's a great speaker and author. He's written some great books. Somehow connected with Anderson Cooper and set up this retreat. It was a very short retreat, um, and Anderson Cooper was very skeptical Will Kabat-Zinn, who's John's son, is actually a teacher here at Spirit Rock. Many of you probably see him. He teaches here regularly on Monday nights. Maybe he's spoken about it. He was also helping at that retreat. And he said Anderson actually wasn't there very much. I think it maybe it was during Ferguson or something, and that came up, and he left and, you know, did his whole news thing and then came back. But still, so he, you know, didn't detach completely. But still... He said it had a profound impact on his life. He literally said it changed his life. And in the, there's a, a segment called, it's like the off the main news 60 minutes. He said, you might say I've drunk the Kool-Aid, <laughs> but I have. This real, I was skeptical, I was doubtful, I, you know, journalist sort of um, skepticism. And it, that short amount of meditation really had an impact on me. And he talked about, you know, the teachings that he got where looking, you know, the mind is so full of thoughts of past and future worries and agenda. You can imagine someone like him must be constantly in contact, twittering and writing and, you know, interviews and, and, and all of the stuff you have to put out. And he said just to see his thoughts like waves on the ocean and that meditation is diving beneath the waves to that quiet, still place that's always there and how nourishing and refreshing that is. And he, he went on about, um, so many people talk about wanting to extend their life, live longer, etc. I said, meditation is the way to do that. It doesn't mean you'll actually live longer, but you'll be present for your life here and now and not lost in past and future. So actually will live your life and be present for it. So it was amazing to, to see how enthusiastic he was. I don't know how long it will last. The, the other person, again a journalist who's really um, in the news at the moment about mindfulness and meditation is Dan Harris. He's an anchor on a morning show, ABC, um, did a retreat here at Spirit Rock, has become friends with Joseph Goldstein. And uh, he says, this is what he says, I always thought meditation was uniquely ridiculous and annoying. It was for people who lived in yurts or collect crystals or listen to Cat Stevens. That any, I think he's a little old-fashioned in his view of meditation. Anyway, he says, I am definitely not cut from this cloth. And yet, after a years-long quest that took him to self-help gurus, spiritual leaders, and brain scientists, Harris took up meditation. He has now written a book extolling its life-changing power. It's called 10% Happier. How I tamed the voice in my head, reduced stress without losing my edge, and found self-help that actually works. A true story. 
And so there's a lot online about him. He's really totally uh, an evangelist now for meditation and came up with this idea of 10% happier just to, for all the skeptics out there. You know, it's not change. Well, he does say changed his life. But, uh, you know, not to look for those big shifts, but even 10%. Even 20% is a radical shift and that it's possible through mindfulness, through paying attention. And he was asked in an interview, who are some of the meditation devotees we've heard of? And he answered, Bill Ford, who until recently was head of Ford Motor Company. He comes to Spirit Rock. At least one of the founders of Twitter, Jack Dorsey. Congressman Tim Ryan from Ohio, if you heard of him, he wrote a whole book called Mindfulness Nation. He's there in Congress. He has a meditation group in Congress. There's a sign of hope for you. I don't know how many people. I think someone asked him, have any Republicans come yet? He said, no, not yet, but coming. Phil Jackson, the new general manager for the New York Knicks, George Stephanopoulos, and Diane Sawyer. So just a list of names. And, of course, mindfulness in schools, in prisons, in the healthcare system, um, in, in therapy, in every kind of activity, the, some of the many of the big corporations, Google and Facebook and uh, uh, Genentech are all teaching meditation and especially mindfulness meditation to their employees. So it's happening. You're on the wave of something that's, I, as I said, I find it inspiring. And I wouldn't have guessed that it would be kind of secular mindfulness that would be the doorway for the Dhamma. But that's how I see it, is it's a doorway because, and this is what I'm going to talk about, just mindfulness isn't enough. What is mindfulness? And again, it's interesting, you could ask everyone here and you'd probably all have a different answer. So why don't I ask you, what, what is mindfulness? You can just call it out and I'll repeat. Anyone got a definition of what mindfulness is? Presence. Presence, mm-hmm. Yes. What's that? Paying attention, attention, yes. Without judgment, judgment, so paying attention without judgment. Noticing. Noticing. Variation. So these are are all good and fine definitions of the central aspect of mindfulness, but it's not the complete picture of what mindfulness is. True mindfulness is this presence, paying attention, has a non-judgmental quality, but it also has some reflectivity. Often when people give me definitions of mindfulness, presence, paying attention, one of the things I say is, yes, and a dog does that, right? You know, a dog, when it's out there sniffing around, they're paying attention, they're not very judgmental. What's this? Oh, eat it. You can decide whether you like it or not later, you know. <laughs> Go smell that. Someone's rear end. Oh, you know, not, they're not judgmental about that. They're like right in there. So a dog's mindful? Yes, but not in a way that is going to be certainly awake, awake uh, allowing us to wake up. There's something else that needs to happen some kind of inner reflection, reflectivity. You're mindful and you know that you're mindful. And this doesn't have to be heavy-handed, but there's just awareness of the clarity of the mindfulness itself. 
So there's the awareness of the object, but true mindfulness knows that and is aware that it is being mindful. So it's not so lost in the object like a dog. You know, a dog is mindful. It's like, oh, this, oh, this, oh, this. (laughs) You know, and they're happy, they're excited, but they're not reflective about their experience. And so this inner knowing, and true mindfulness is called samasati, Word sama uh, means right or true or whole or complete, onward leading. Sati is the Pali word for mindfulness. And it's one of the path factors. You know, I talked about all the lists at the end of the years, you know, the 10 best this and the 100 best that and the worst or the most interesting or famous or whatever. The Buddha loved lists too, lots of lists. So we have the Four Noble Truths um, and, the, and the Fourth Noble Truth is the Eightfold Path. And one of those path factors, path that leads to awakening, is right or wise mindfulness, samasati. So it's very central. But true mindfulness leads to insight. You could say wisdom. I, I was talking earlier about wisdom and compassion, this clear mind. Mindfulness, samasati, leads to this clarity. It leads to insight, this Subtle separation, sort of, you could say detachment, but not in a bad way, but just it's this knowing quality of the mind that we can be aware of. So we're not lost in the object. This leads to disidentification. So it's not me wanting this, me, my glass, my necklace or whatever. There's, there's this kind of awareness. There's this subtle letting go that happens in true mindfulness. The non-judging is also part of that. You know, when we're judging something, we're, we're identified with it because we're liking it, not liking it. There's this clarity. And it leads to a lessening of suffering. True mindfulness has that power and capacity. It's why people love it. Because it, that little bit of disengagement, that little bit of not completely stuck and caught allows the mind to relax and release a little. Bhikkhu Bodhi is one of our preeminent uh, scholars of uh, Buddhist philosophy and a translator. And he says this, it's a little dense, but in the proper practice of right mindfulness, sati, mindfulness, has to be integrated with sampajanya, clear comprehension. And it is only when these two work together that right mindfulness can fulfill its intended purpose. So it's this this sense that mindfulness has to be guided by these other qualities and it it's a it's a back and forth process. It evokes and establishes and and grows these other qualities and is also served and supported by them. So the purpose of mindfulness is not just to be happier, 10% happier or whatever your metric is, though that's an, you know, that's an important part and it's one of the beautiful benefits of this practice. But it's to develop this kind of insight or wisdom. We call it the insight into the three characteristics. I'm just touching on these things, but characteristics of impermanence, not unsatisfactoriness or unreliability. The the world is always challenging us in different ways. And not self, that there's nothing solid, stable, permanent at the center of all this. As well as that, 
true mindfulness has the capacity, has the quality of decreasing unwholesome states of mind and increasing wholesome ones. Just by the paying of attention with this kind of wise understanding. Um, so just the mind, dog-like mindfulness doesn't have those qualities. The mindfulness that we're talking about that's so powerful and so transforming is guided by and nurtures these different qualities. Um, one of my teachers, uh, very inspiring at the moment, is Sayadaw Utejaniya. He's a Burmese meditation master, quite radical in some ways, especially for Burma. And he has a book whose title is Awareness Alone is Not Enough. And what he's pointing to is the necessity of wisdom, the necessity of equanimity in our practice of mindfulness to really allow this process to deepen in a way that will be freeing, that will allow our hearts to open and our minds to be clear. He says the basic objective of meditation is to improve the quality of the mind. The work of awareness is just to know. That's kind of the dog-like nature of mindfulness. The work of wisdom is to differentiate between what is skillful and unskillful. And this is where it helps us in our clarity, uh, clarification of intention and what, what really serves us, what's skillful, what's unskillful. Wisdom inclines towards the good but is not attached to it. It shies away from what is not good but has no aversion to it. Wisdom recognizes the differences between skillful and unskillful and clearly sees the undesirability of the unskillful. So we use our practice and this internal reflection to bring wisdom into our relationship with our inner world but certainly the outer world. We are our own laboratory. It's like a one big science experiment. What's going on here? What, how am I relating to this? What's happening in this heart and mind? And what's my, my deepest or truest response to this experience, this thought, this emotion, this, this outer experience, this relationship, this person? How do I align with my highest values? Mindfulness is what allows us to stay present to track that. And so these go hand in hand. The deepening of the wisdom allows the mindfulness to grow. The deepening of the mindfulness naturally increases um, the wisdom aspect. And so we learn from ourselves. This is the powerful thing. It's not some outer teacher, though teachings are helpful, reading and study and practice, all different kinds of settings are helpful. But the most important teacher is your own inner presence, allied with this wisdom, this framework of practice. I often read this poem from Mary Oliver, just because it speaks to this so much, it's called Mindful. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, 
But of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these? The untrimmable light of the world, the ocean shine, the prayers that are made out of grass. And it just speaks to this, this poem speaks to this presence. Lose myself inside this soft world and instruct myself. Not, you know, with the big majestic things, but just this simple presence, this world as it is. And then we can truly grow and deepen in mindfulness. So people mentioned mindfulness has this non-judging quality. It has discernment, though, and that's important because it's not apathetic. It's not, oh, things, you know, that's just how it is. Oh, dear. Oh, well. Suzuki Roshi has this great line. One of my dear friends, it was her favorite line of his. She used it all the time. Accept what is as it is and help it to be its best. So this quality of discernment, even with the equanimity. He, another great line he, he had, Suzuki Roshi, uh, things, th- things are perfect just as they are, but there's always room for improvement. And it's this paradox. We accept things as they are. That's the equanimity. But the wisdom, the discernment, knows what the potential is, knows what the development is, knows what the possibility for the heart being more open, more compassionate, more kind, the mind being clearer, more wise, more, more equanimity. And so they feed and support each other. We don't separate these aspects of our practice. As the mindfulness allows us to be more present with what is, we're touched by it. We can't help but be touched by it. As we're touched by it, we notice the difficulty. What we're often being touched by is the challenges of life, both in our own experience and lives, but the lives of those we meet and care about. And then, of course, the news that we read of the troubles and the struggles in certainly this country, but all over the world. So we're touched by that. When we're touched, it, the heart that's open with clarity naturally responds with compassion. So again, they cycle around and feed each other. As we open with compassion, if we don't want to be overwhelmed by the difficulties of this, this world, we need the equanimity that says, accept things as they are. Things are as they are. You know, the famous serenity prayer. Grant me the serenity to accept things I cannot change, the courage to change things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. There's our whole practice uh, right there. And it's interesting that the um, Shantideva, who was 8th century great practitioner and and, uh, uh, (coughs) mystic in the Buddhist tradition, he said something very similar. He said, if there's a remedy when trouble strikes, what reason is there for dejection? And if there is no help for it, what use is there in being glum? It's basically the same sentiment. It's like if you can do something about it, then there's your faith and motivation, you do it. And if you can't, then that's just how it is. No use to be glum about it. 
And it's important to remember that equanimity isn't apathetic acceptance. When we say things are as they are, we don't do that with slumped shoulders and a kind of resignation. Equanimity is this balance of mind that can hold the joys and the sorrows. It's totally open to the joys, the beauty of life. And if the mind is clear, the heart is open, we experience that perhaps even more fully or deeply than we otherwise might. But it also is open to the sorrows, the difficulties, the challenge. But it doesn't get pulled too far out of balance. We will get out of balance if we're responsive human beings until the mind is fully enlightened and in that perfect state of equanimity. We will come out of balance. But the practice of mindfulness and equanimity is to know we can find ourselves, find our way back to balance. So it's not rigid. Equanimity doesn't mean I find some static place and hold on to it and stay there. That's impossible. That's painful. But it's that responsiveness of the tree and the wind that always comes back to the uprightness and the ease. And so all of us find ourselves in situations where you just say, I can't bear this anymore. It's impossible. And yet you take a breath, you open, you relax, you release, and you find you can. And then there's the next moment, and we meet that. And we have that possibility over and over again. So it's this deep acceptance of what is, this non-judgmental acceptance, but it also has a discerning quality to it that knows what's, what's truly best for us, what's our... Uh, in our best interests, and what do we need to do to cultivate, to let go of, to actually refine and keep the light burning of that intention. It's not a static or a, a dull place. It really is quite deep and profound. Ajahn Sumedho, that great teacher, his equanimity line is always, it's like this. Anger is like this. Oh, fear. Oh, it's like this. Joy is like this. Calm is like this. This is mindfulness recognizing the experience, but with that clarity that we're not lost in it. We're not caught, bound up by anger, but able to say, oh, anger. Anger is like this. We're not rejecting it, denying it, thinking that we shouldn't be angry, but having the wisdom to know, oh, anger is like this, fear is like this, worry is like this. One of my dear friends and another teacher, Kamala Masters, asked me to do an equanimity retreat with her. Next, no, I think it's 2016, we have to plan so far ahead. We already had to come up with a title, and, and she came up with Open Heart, Restful Balance, Wise Response. And I think that really... Uh, encapsulates this possibility of this path of practice. And I want to end with um, some words from Sylvia. I've mentioned her a few times. She's always a, a great inspiration to me, but this is from her book, Happiness is an Inside Job. I consider my meditation practice a success because of one crucial and definite change in me in the 30 years since I began. I now trust that even when what is happening to me is difficult, 
and my response to it is painful. I will not suffer if I keep my mind clear enough to keep my heart engaged. I know that my suffering begins whenever my mind, for whatever reason, the enormity or the suddenness of the challenge, its own exhausted state, becomes confused. In its confusion, it seems to forget everything it ever knew. It tells itself stories, alternatively angry, this isn't fair or pitiful, poor me, or frightening. I can't stand it if things aren't different. No inner voice of wisdom. This is what's happening. It's part of the whole spectrum of painful things that happen to human beings and you can manage. That voice can't, cannot make itself heard to soothe the distress. I continue to suffer, stumbling around in stories of discontent until I catch myself and stop and allow myself to know and deeply feel that I am frightened or confused or disappointed or angry or tired or ashamed or sad that I'm in pain. Then my own good heart, out of compassion, takes care of me. It all happens when I am able to say to myself, I honestly do use these very words, Sweetheart, you're in pain. Relax. Take a breath. Let's pay attention to what is happening. Then we'll figure out what to do. And I love that. It's so typically Sylvia, the honesty of the acknowledging of being in confusion and pain and shock and being annoyed and and fearful. Yet if we align ourselves with what's actually right here in front of us, allow ourselves to breathe and to feel the inner wisdom is there. And as she says, we'll figure out what to do. So that really is the possibility that mindfulness brings, the open heart, the clear mind, and we can figure out what to do as we cultivate inner wisdom, inner knowing, wise response. So I went on longer than I thought, didn't leave much time for comments or questions, but in the last couple of minutes, any reflections on your 2014 intentions going forward for 15, anything I've said that uh, has, has touched you in some way? Anyone wish to share with the whole group? Do we usually use a microphone, bro? Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't know if anyone's going to say a brave soul to make your intention that you're going to speak in public. One of the most fearful things to do. Anyone wish to share a few words? Here's one, someone right here. And say, say your name. My name's Michael. Hi. Hello. And my intention is to speak in public. <laughs> Thank you. He did it. Yay. Hey, one down. Great. Any, anyone else? Hi, my name is Robert. And I set my intention to be, no matter what, unrelenting in my kindness. Hmm. And uh, hopefully that includes kindness to yourself. When you relent a little in your kindness. Because that's really part of it. I love the intention and it's a practice. But to keep deepening in kindness. It seems, it's like mindfulness. It seems a simple thing. 
And it's the heart of everything. If we can be kind to ourselves, kind to others, every, we'll figure everything else out. Anyone else? You know, there's something powerful about sharing an intention, sharing a response. Gets out there in the, in the field. Right there. My name's Margaret. Hi. And I've just come out of a period of confusion and being mm. lost and got centered through meditation yesterday. And I had a wonderful experience because I first walked up the dipsy stairs and ran into a black cat who crawled onto my lap mm. and just wanted to be pet. And then as I came down, I ran into an old man who had, um, was carrying these big bundles and clearly was having trouble walking and he had a cane. And so I went up to him and asked him if he needed some help. And he had gotten a pinched nerve or something. And he, I said, well, where do you live? I'll help walk you there. And it was like blocks and blocks away. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, just stay there. I'll go get my car. Mm -hmm. And I took him to his house. And my intention is to is to try and hold on to that and after other periods of confusion, which will come, to be able to get back to that kind of place where the engagement in the world and, and being able to connect, whether it's to cats or to mm -hmm. old guys, that I can do that as much as, you know, and, try, and, and really try to always be open to those possibilities in the world for connection and, and to give help. Yeah, lovely. So just an actual act of kindness. Okay, we should wind up. It's the end of our time. So we, thanks, girl. Uh, we usually like just to sit quietly for a moment. If you haven't had a moment yet in your busy day, your busy week, to reflect on your intentions and in going forward in the new year, let's take a moment. What, what's been of value for you this year, what have you learnt? Where have been the edges for you? Where have you grown? What would you like to let go of? What would you like to orient towards a new direction, clarification? And just find a sentence, a phrase to encapsulate that, offering it to yourself with kindness out of a wish for your own well-being and happiness. And then acknowledging the, the goodness, the merit, the, the clarity and kindness that you manifested in coming here this evening and sharing that with yourself so that it's for your benefit and well-being, but also offering it to the benefit and well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be free. So thank you for your attention and your practice this evening. Hope it was helpful for you. Your last mindfulness practice, two last mindfulness practices. One, sometimes people stay and help put the chairs back. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.